0: Chapter Two of Public Opinion by Walter Lippmann This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Two Censorship and Privacy. The picture of a general presiding over an editorial conference at the most terrible hour of one of the great battles of history seems more like a scene from the chocolate soldier than a page from life. Yet we know at first hand from the officer who edited the French communiques that these conferences were a regular part of the business of war, that in the worst moment of Verdun, General Joffre and his cabinet met and argued over the nouns, adjectives, and verbs that were to be printed in the newspapers the next morning. Quote, the evening communique of the 23rd, February 1916, end quote, says M. de Pierrefou, footnote, GQG, pages 126 to 129, quote, was edited in a dramatic atmosphere. M. Berthelot, of the Prime Minister's office, had just telephoned by order of the Minister, asking General Pelle to strengthen the report and to emphasize the proportions of the enemy's attack. It was necessary to prepare the public for the worst outcome in case the affair turned into a catastrophe this anxiety showed clearly that neither at g h q nor at the ministry of war had the government found reason for confidence as m berthelot spoke general pelle made notes he handed me the paper on which he had written the government's wishes together with the order of the day issued by general von daimling and found on some prisoners in which it was stated that this attack was the supreme offensive to secure peace skillfully used all this was to demonstrate that germany was letting loose a gigantic effort an effort without precedent and that from its success she hoped for the end of the war the logic of this was that nobody needed to be surprised at our withdrawal when a half hour later i went down with my manuscript i found gathered together in colonel claudel's office he being away the major general general janine colonel dupont and lieutenant colonel renard Fearing that I would not succeed in giving the desired impression, General Pele had himself prepared a proposed communique. I read what I had just done. It was found to be too moderate. General Pele's, on the other hand, seemed too alarming. I had purposely omitted von Daimling's order of the day. To put it into the communique would be to break with the formula to which the public was accustomed, would be to transform it into a kind of pleading." it would seem to say, how do you suppose we can resist? There was reason to fear that the public would be distracted by this change of tone, and would believe that everything was lost. I explained my reasons and suggested giving Daimling's text to the newspapers in the form of a separate note. Quote, opinion being divided, General Pelle went to ask General de Castelnau to come and decide finally. The general arrived smiling, quiet and good-humored, Said a few pleasant words about this new kind of literary council of war, and looked at the texts. He chose the simpler one, gave more weight to the first phrase, inserted the words, as had been anticipated, which supply a reassuring quality, and was flatly against inserting von Daimling's order, but was for transmitting it to the press in a special note. End quote. General Joffre that evening read the communique carefully and approved it within a few hours those two or three hundred words would be read all over the world they would paint a picture in men's minds of what was happening on the slopes of verdun and in front of that picture people would take heart or despair the shopkeeper in brest the peasant in lorraine the deputy in the palais bourbon the editor in amsterdam or minneapolis had to be kept in hope and yet prepared to accept possible defeat without yielding to panic they are told therefore that the loss of ground is no surprise to the French command. They are taught to regard the affair as serious, but not strange. Now, as a matter of fact, the French general staff was not fully prepared for the German offensive. Supporting trenches had not been dug, alternative roads had not been built, barbed wire was lacking. But to confess that would have aroused images in the heads of civilians that might well have turned a reverse into a disaster. The high command could be disappointed, and yet pull itself together, the people at home and abroad, full of uncertainties, and with none of the professional man's singleness of purpose, might on the basis of a complete story have lost sight of the war, in a melee of faction and counterfaction about the competence of the officers. Instead, therefore, of letting the public act on all the facts which the generals knew, the authorities presented only certain facts, and these only in such a way as would be most likely to steady the people. In this case, the men who arranged the suedo environment knew what the real one was. But a few days later an incident occurred about which the French staff did not know the truth. The Germans announced, footnote, on February 26, 1916, Pierrefu GQG, pages 133, at Sequins, that on the previous afternoon they had taken Fort Dumont by assault. At French headquarters in Chantilly, no one could understand this news. For on the morning of the 25th, after the engagement of the 20th Corps, the battle had taken a turn for the better. Reports from the front said nothing about Dumont. But inquiry showed that the German report was true, though no one as yet knew how the fort had been taken. In the meantime, the German communique was being flashed around the world, and the French had to say something. So headquarters explained, in the midst of total ignorance at chantilly about the way the attack had taken place we imagined in the evening communique of the twenty-sixth a plan of the attack which certainly had a thousand to one chance of being true the communique of this imaginary battle read a bitter struggle is taking place around fort de dumont which is an advanced post of the old defensive organization of verdun the position taken this morning by the enemy after several unsuccessful assaults that cost him very heavy losses, has been reached again, and passed by our troops whom the enemy has not been able to drive back, End quote. Footnote. This is my own translation. The English translation from London published in the New York Times of Sunday, February 27th, is as follows. London, February 26th, 1916. A furious struggle has been in progress around Fort de Dumont, which is an advance element of the old defensive organization of Verdun fortresses. The position captured this morning by the enemy, after several fruitless assaults which cost him extremely heavy losses. Footnote, the French text says, quote, Pertus tres elevis. Thus, the English translation exaggerates the original text. Was reached again and gone beyond by our troops, which all the attempts of the enemy have not been able to push back. End quote. What had actually happened differed from both the French and German accounts. While changing troops in the line, the position had somehow been forgotten in a confusion of orders. Only a battery commander and a few men remained in the fort. Some German soldiers, seeing the door open, had crawled into the fort and taken everyone inside prisoner. A little later, the French who were on the slopes of the hill were horrified at being shot at from the fort. They had seen no battle at Dumont and no losses nor had the French troops advanced beyond it, as the communiqués seemed to say. They were beyond it on either side, to be sure, but the fort was in enemy hands. Yet from the communiqués everyone believed that the fort was half-surrounded. The words did not explicitly say so, but, quote, the press, as usual, forced the pace, end quote. Military writers concluded that the Germans would soon have to surrender. In a few days, they began to ask themselves why the garrison, since it lacked food, had not yet surrendered. Quote, it was necessary through the press bureau to request them to drop the encirclement theme. Footnote, Pierre Fou, cited above, page 134-135. to 135. The editor of the French Communiqué tells us that as the battle dragged out, his colleagues and he set out to neutralize the pernacity of the Germans by continual insistence on their terrible losses. It is necessary to remember that at this time, and in fact until late in 1917, the orthodox view of the war for all the Allied peoples was that it would be decided by attrition. Nobody believed in a war of movement. It was insisted that strategy did not count, or diplomacy. It was simply a matter of killing Germans. The general public more or less believed the dogma, but it had constantly to be reminded of it in face of spectacular German successes. almost no day passed but the communique ascribed to the germans with some appearance of justice heavy losses extremely heavy spoke of bloody sacrifices heaps of corpses hecatombs likewise the wireless constantly used the statistics of the intelligence bureau at verdun whose chief major cointet had invented a method of calculating german losses which obviously produced marvellous results every fortnight the figures increased a hundred thousand or so These 300,000, 400,000, 500,000 casualties put out, divided into daily, weekly, monthly losses, repeated in all sorts of ways, produced a striking effect. Our formula varied little. According to prisoners, the German losses in the course of the attack have been considerable. It is proved that the losses... The enemy exhausted by his losses has not renewed the attack. Certain formula later abandoned because they had been overworked were used each day quote, "under our artillery and machine gun fire mowed down by our artillery and machine gun fire" constant repetition impressed the neutrals and germany itself and helped to create a bloody background in spite of the denials from Nowen, the german wireless which tried vainly to destroy the bad effect of this perpetual repetition end quote. footnote cited above pages 138 to 139 the thesis of the french command which it wished to establish publicly by these reports was formulated as follows for the guidance of the censors this offensive engages the active forces of our opponent whose manpower is declining we have learned that the class of nineteen sixteen is already at the front there will remain the nineteen seventeen class already being called up and the resources of the third category men above forty-five or convalescents in a few weeks the german forces exhausted by this effort will find themselves confronted with all the forces of the coalition ten millions against seven millions end quote. footnote cited above page 147. according to m de Pierfou, the french command had converted itself to this belief quote, by an extraordinary aberration of mind only the attrition of the enemy was seen It appeared that our forces were not subject to attrition. General Nivell shared these ideas. We saw the result in 1917. We have learned to call this propaganda. A group of men, who can prevent independent access to the event, arrange the news of it to suit their purpose. That the purpose was, in this case, patriotic does not affect the argument at all. They used their power to make the allied public see affairs as they desired them to be seen. The casualty figures of major cointet which were spread around the world are of the same order. They were intended to provoke a particular kind of inference, namely that the war of attrition was going in favor of the French. But the inference is not drawn in the form of argument. It results almost automatically from the creation of a mental picture of endless Germans slaughtered on the hills about Verdun, By putting the dead Germans in the focus of the picture, and by omitting to mention the French dead, a very special view of the battle was built up. It was a view designed to neutralize the effects of German territorial advances, and the impression of power which the persistence of the offensive was making. It was also a view that tended to make the public acquiesce in the demoralizing defensive strategy imposed upon the Allied armies. For the public, accustomed to the idea that war consists of great strategic movements flank attacks encirclements and dramatic surrenders had gradually to forget that picture in favor of the terrible idea that by matching lives the war would be won through its control over all news from the front the general staff substituted a view of the facts that comported with this strategy the general staff of an army in the field is so placed that within wide limits it can control what the public will perceive It controls the selection of correspondents who go to the front, controls their movements at the front, reads and centers their messages from the front, and operates the wires. The government behind the army, by its command of cables and passports, mails and custom houses, and blockades, increases the control. It emphasizes it by legal power over publishers, over public meetings, and by its secret service. But in the case of an army, the control is far from perfect. There is always the enemy's communique, which in these days of wireless cannot be kept away from neutrals. Above all, there is the talk of the soldiers, which blows back from the front and is spread about when they are on leave. Footnote. For weeks prior to the American attack at saint Miel and in the Argonne-Masse, everybody in France told everybody else the deep secret. An army is an unwieldy thing. And that is why the naval and diplomatic censorship is almost always much more complete. Fewer people know what is going on, and their acts are more easily supervised. Without some form of censorship, propaganda in the strict sense of the word is impossible. In order to conduct a propaganda, there must be some barrier between the public and the event. Access to the real environment must be limited, before anyone can create a pseudo environment that he thinks wise or desirable. For while people who have direct access can misconceive what they see, no one else can decide how they shall misconceive it unless he can decide where they shall look and at what the military censorship is the simplest form of barrier but by no means the most important because it is known to exist and is therefore in certain measure agreed to and discounted at different times and for different subjects some men impose and other men accept a particular standard of secrecy the frontier between what is concealed because publication is not as we say compatible with the public interest fades gradually into what is concealed because it is believed to be none of the public's business the notion of what constitutes a person's private affairs is elastic thus the amount of a man's fortune is considered a private affair and careful provision is made in the income tax law to keep it as private as possible the sale of a piece of land is not private but the price may be salaries are generally treated as more private than wages Incomes as more private than inheritances. A person's credit rating is given only a limited circulation. The profits of big corporations are more public than those of small firms. Certain kinds of conversation, between man and wife, lawyer and client, doctor and patient, priest and communicant, are privileged. Directors' meetings are generally private. So are many political conferences. Most of what is said at a cabinet meeting or by an ambassador to the secretary of state or at private interviews or dinner-tables is private many people regard the contract between employer and employee as private there was a time when the affairs of all corporations were held to be as private as a man's theology is today. there was a time before that when his theology was held to be as public a matter as the color of his eyes but infectious diseases on the other hand were once as private as the processes of a man's digestion. The history of the notion of privacy would be an entertaining tale. Sometimes the notions violently conflict, as they did when the Bolsheviks published the secret treaties, or when Mr. Hughes investigated the life insurance companies, or when somebody's scandal exudes from the pages of town topics to the front pages of Mr. Hurst's newspapers. Whether the reasons for privacy are good or bad, the barriers exist privacy is insisted upon at all kinds of places in the area of what is called public affairs it is often very illuminating therefore to ask yourself how you got at the facts on which you base your opinion who actually saw heard felt counted named the thing about which you have an opinion was it the man who told you or the man who told him or someone else still further removed and how much was he permitted to see When he informs you that France thinks this and that, what part of France did he watch? How was he able to watch it? Where was he when he watched it? What Frenchman was he permitted to talk to? What newspapers did he read? And where did they learn what they say? You can ask yourself these questions, but you can rarely answer them. They will remind you, however, of the distance which often separates your public opinion from the event with which it deals. And the reminder is itself a protection. End of chapter 2.